Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to Past and Perfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. Our guest today is a former Bosnian refugee who is now one of the most respected foreign policy experts in the House of Lords and an advisor to the UN. We first met her 10 years ago when she was a special advisor to William Hague, then Foreign Secretary. Whenever we went to interview him, he would say we really should be interviewing her instead. Then, when she was sworn into the House of Lords as a Tory peer, the Hollywood star Angelina Jolie was in the gallery along with Mr Haig and Hillary Clinton sent a message of congratulations. Angelina Jolie calls her her mentor and they now run a charity together campaigning against the use of sexual violence in war. She is Arminka Helich, Baroness Helich, and we're on our way to see her in Yorkshire. So we're here in Yorkshire now um, and it's absolutely freezing, uh, surprisingly. And so we've come into this rather extraordinary uh, cavernous hall, which may be a bit echoey, but is rather pretty. But we're in Yorkshire, but you have actually just been in a House of Lords committee. How did that work, Arminka? It was a a quick one because uh, committees and uh, sittings in the House of Lords are now conducted virtually. I mean, virtual and hybrid uh, combination. And basically since... uh, April this year, we have been uh, sitting, as I say, virtually in both committees, and I'm a member of International Relations and Defence Committee, and I do all my parliamentary work now online, whether I ask a question or whether I uh, participate in a debate. And does that mean you can wear ermine and pyjamas? No, I can (laughs) Do you dress formally? That means I can have my sort of uh, sweatpants and sort of wear uh, a nice top. It looks a little bit weird, but it works perfectly well for me. And how many countries have you zoomed into this week? I have, oh, well, privately, I, I usually zoom with the United States on a regular basis. And, um, but I had a really interesting experience. 20th of April is my birthday. And a friend of mine organised a um, drinks party uh, by Zoom. And it was amazing because I had... Uh, my childhood friend from Germany, Portugal, my cousin from Spain, uh, my friends from the United States, one from Australia, one from London, uh, my family from Bosnia. It was really quite amazing. And I thought, like, well, this is a breakthrough. It could have been amazing. a lonely uh, birthday, but it was very nice. Everyone was well behaved and we had a cut-off point. What did you drink? <laughs> we had a champagne. We had a proper champagne um, and it was very well organised because everyone was um, instructed, without me ever being consulted, to say something nice about me. <laughs> or to say something about me. And I guess because it was my birthday, they all said something nice about me. And it was really, really... It was wonderful. And was Angelina Jolie there with you or not? On the Zoom, Zoom. Yes, she was. Oh. <laughs> but you work very closely with Angelina Jolie. Do you find this... She must be very different to you in some ways, but you, you share this common cause. Do you find the mismatch between you sort of 
funny or peculiar? No, I think that a good team is a team that brings different uh, qualities. So, so like Mr. and Mrs. Smith? Well, I don't know. I've never <laughs> seen it, to be honest. But uh, so it is, you know, so I, do, I actually don't. I mean, and also I have worked, you know, I have worked in a, with, with some really interesting people over the last 20 years. And I genuinely think that if you have a passion for children's rights, or child protection or women's rights, it really doesn't matter where you come from. It is what you can bring to the table. And if you understand uh, what the issues are, and if you come from different backgrounds, you actually can make a bigger contribution to whatever cause you are trying to support. And things could have worked out very differently, couldn't they? Because you were born in 1968 yes. in the former Yugoslavia. Um, mm-hmm. So you came from a very different background from most people. Uh, oh, you're, you're now trying to compare Hollywood to Gratchenitsa, where I was born. <laughs> no comparison whatsoever. They could have, I mean, had war not happened, I would have probably lived in Bosnia. Uh, I would be doing what I was doing when the war broke out. I would be teaching in a high school. I was teaching English language and literature. And if everything had worked out, I would have been... Shakespeare scholar. I would have sort of got my master's or PhD from some pretty cool university. Oxford was my kind of absolute dream. And uh, that would have been a completely different life. So you grew up under communism. What was that like? Was it very tough? It was, um, I, I don't know, I, I, people have different perceptions of communism, and obviously that is, a, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a not a democracy. Yugoslavia was a lot less of a communist, and it was a socialism plus or communism minus. It was a non-aligned country, uh, it wasn't in Warsaw Pact, it was, it was probably closer, I would say, to uh, North Atlantic uh, organization and uh, it was it was tough and it was very different to the upbringing that my friends here in the United Kingdom or elsewhere when they talk about their uh, childhood I kind of recognize some of that but it wasn't my childhood my childhood was very different it was a it was tough environment well organized environment so when you say tough how did that manifest itself well it 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 you know, you, in Yugoslavia, you, you didn't have too much, more than you needed to have, to have a, let's put it this way, it's like austerity heavy, mm. because the country was, uh, uh, came out of war. Proportionally, uh, it lost more citizens than any other country, the Second World War, more than the uh, Soviet Union, in proportion to the number of, of um, citizens of, of the countries that constituted Yugoslavia at the end. It was a country that was recovering. It was a country that was in development. It was a country where there was a huge uh, push for uh, educating uh, population that was, you know, ma- majority of what was illiterate, ensuring that everyone goes to school, that everyone... And, uh, you know, I come from a family of... Uh, there were five daughters. And uh, my father was... Uh, in the military, but then a civil servant in a, in a sort of military, ministry of defense. And my mother worked and then stopped working when she had her third daughter. And uh, they had to bring us up in this 
very different society to the what one I'm living in now. And uh, did you, you join the Communist Party at all? I didn't because I was actually because I was a good student, age fourteen. I was offered fourteen or fifteen. I cannot remember exactly. I was supposed to join the party, but I refused to because I thought that the party didn't live up to the standards of what we were taught in school. And I said I couldn't join the party that in my books was corrupt. And that wasn't, didn't go down particularly well. And I didn't <laughs> so join the party. what did they say? Did, they, did you get into trouble? I got into trouble because, you know, it was sort of basically unheard of that you could even go down that route. And uh, I was, I wasn't, I wouldn't say that I was ostracized, but there was a little bit of... I was feeling a little bit marginalized and a little bit sort of taken in a, in a, I was different and I remember going to university after that and there were all these meetings and parties and everything and trips and you know organized when I wasn't invited to but I kind of found refuge in you know Virginia Woolf and I was fine with it I wasn't going to compromise and I genuinely didn't you know communism has certain elements to it that in some ideal world, if applied, would create this uh, utopian society. And I spent my primary and secondary school having Marxism twice a year, twice a, twice a week, and uh, being taught one thing in school and seeing another thing uh, out there was quite a shock for me. It was a shock to see that 1% of the population was living lives that you probably lived in this country. And your parents must have uh, lived there during the Nazi occupation. Did that also hang over the country as a shadow? Oh, it did, because, uh, you know, Yugoslavia was occupied by Germans and Italians and then neighbouring country Quislings. And um, my Bosnia was occupied by Germans. And um, I remember a story my mother telling me when she was six uh, my grandmother's house was occupied by German officers because it was in the center of Tuzla, which is a town in north mm. uh, east Bosnia. And my mum's task was to get up in the morning and clean their boots, really? shine, you know, buff their boots. And my mum said to me always, you know, you, I couldn't, you know, you couldn't do anything. You just have to do it. And I said, why did you say, oh, I'm not going to do that? You're Nazis. And she said, I couldn't because two of her brothers were in partisans and they had to hide that they had brothers and that they were, you know, in the hills fighting Germans. So it was a... It, but that, that the experience of the Second World War did weigh very heavily, heavily on my family because it was, it was a bloody war. It was war that also... It, it, you, it's not only that they had to fight the Germans and Italians and Bulgarians and anyone else who dared to go in, but they also had, there was an internal sort of conflict between, you know, Croatia, for example, was an independent state of Croatia, which was a part of a Nazi axis. Uh, and uh, then you had royalist Chetniks who were nationalists, uh, in, supported and, you know, emanating from Serbia. And you had everyone else, mishmash of people. And then you had partisans who were fighting against Nazis and Ustashas and Chetniks. And it was an almighty nightmare, I guess. And your family was also Muslim, wasn't it? So there must have been a religious element to all this fighting. Or, or was that not apparent until later? Oh, I wasn't, to be honest, aware of my religion until the war started in 1990s because religion wasn't a part of my upbringing. 
and uh, Muslims were not recognized as uh, constituent peoples in Yugoslavia until 1968. So my father had declared himself a Serb and my mother declared herself a Croat until 1968 when I was born, and that changed. Uh, but it didn't, you know, religion really has not played and doesn't play a huge part in who I am or who my parents were. My grandmother was um, prayed five times a day, but she was a very boisterous and very sort of good, strong, solid woman where that was a part of what she did. It didn't define her. So how did you become aware that war was breaking out again? Um, I, was, I became aware because the war broke out. It didn't break out in, in Bosnia. It broke out in Slovenia first. Mm. And then Yugoslav National Army, which by that time had already been, there was a silent coup, if you want, overtaken by Belgrade. And uh, it was very s Serbian and, and heavy on that. They moved to Croatia and they occupied uh, north, the northern part of Croatia. And then they moved down to... Uh, and then there was a, there was a, a UN brokered peace that lasted, I think, for two years uh, around uh, Knin uh, that froze that conflict and then they moved into Bosnia. So I was aware from the early... 1992, end of 1991, that you know things were not right. But if you are brought up in a society and in the country where you are taught that everyone is equal, that your neighbor is your brother, that your best friend is not a Serb or a Croat or a Jew or whatever Muslim, you do not really get. You're not ready for that. And you do not think in those terms. You don't think in terms, oh, he or she is going to be on a different side. You think in terms of, well, there is disagreement, but this is going to be fixed and this is going to be sorted out and they're going to talk it through. And you're brought up to believe that Yugoslav National Army is or was created to protect everyone equally. And you think, well, if they are involved, it cannot possibly be true that they, there was a Vukovar you know, massacre in 1991, or that there was, uh, that Slovenia has just been, uh, you know, occupied. You can't believe that so until it comes very close to you. And when you, when you realize that your TV stations have been switched off, that your TV is not working, your radio is not working, your phone is not working. And then that you, when people start coming into your town who have seen Things and, and then again you don't believe it. You just can't believe it. You're, did it really happen? Did they really live under circumstances of ethnic cleansing and rape and you know destruction? Or what is this fear of something that they think that is out there but they haven't really experienced it? Did you know anyone yourself who was taken away or disappeared? Yes, I did. I did because I had uh, I studied in Sarajevo and majority of students would come from a different uh, towns around Bosnia and in eastern Bosnia in sort of Gorazde and Foča and Zepa, they were the first ones, they're on the border with Serbia, they were the first one to, to fall. And uh, uh, Gorazde not because it kept as a safe area later on. I knew of my colleagues who would I would lose touch with and they were not getting, you know... And what did you, you think know. had happened to them? I just thought, I don't know, you know, it, it's like... You don't. You haven't. You haven't got a reference point, mm. so you don't think like, 
oh, they've gone here or there. You think uh, maybe they, they maybe they've crossed into Croatia. Maybe they're visiting. They've gone to their aunt. Maybe that they've just left for a few weeks. Maybe it's not going to be as bad as you think. Uh, people are talking about you know this is imagine this is a time where there was no mobile phones no twitter no facebook no social media uh, no internet more or less and uh, within that context you rely on on word of mouth and you, you you also rely on tv that is not operating anymore or when it comes back there is uh, someone who is selling you lies mm. so so I was out there covering uh, the war as a journalist, and mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time interviewing rape victims, and mm -hmm. it became very transparent quite quickly that rape was being used as a tool. Mm -hmm. Did that happen to your friends as well? Uh, a few have been taken away, yes. And I actually, even today, I don't know what happened to them. What happened, do you think? Well, I think that they were, you know, like what happened in in Bačko, in Bielina, in, in Eastern Bosnia, wherever uh, paramilitaries walked in, uh, they separated men from women. And, you know, rape wasn't used as a weapon of war because it was an incident because of the breakdown on uh, discipline. You know, if you look at 1992, or 1999 uh, report by uh, Kofi Annan, late Kofi Annan, in the fall of Srebrenica, you see there are documents showing that this was a deliberate uh, military tactics used to uh, humiliate, destroy, and uh, so fear. And it was prescribed as a, as a way of defeating the enemy. So you and your mother and your sisters decided that you had to leave. What was it that triggered that decision? The information that reached my town that my family was on the list of those who were going to be uh, taken out. Because you were 23, is that right? Yes. I was, I was a teacher in a high school. Uh, my sister was a doctor, another one was an architect, the third one was a judge, no, a prosecutor at the time. Uh, and the fourth one was, uh, was an economist working in the local authority. You come and, you know, you know how you decapitate uh, a town. Mm. You go out for the people who right. can be organized and people who are being looked up to. And I, my sister's not me, <laughs> and mm. my father was, were fall in that category. I was, a, I was a young, you know, just out of university. And, you know, you wanted to take out those who would, I wouldn't say we were a pillar of the society, but those who kind of meant something mm. and that was done throughout it, it, it's a, it's a well-known tactics and I again personally didn't I so I didn't take it seriously it didn't didn't feel heavy and close and truthful mm. but knowing that my father would want us to leave meant quite a lot to me because he's not a man who easily lets his family be separated. Did you flee with anything at all, or did you have to just take nothing with you? I, I didn't f have much, you know, you don't, you don't really flee with a suitcase, I must <laughs> say. You flee with what y you think is the dearest to you. 
And um, what was that? Oh, it was a black leather jacket. <laughs> so that was literally the only thing you took with well, you? Well, I had that and I had uh, old Yugoslav passport uh, of a country that didn't exist. And uh, I had a few personal possessions, you know, my diary, etc. And uh, very, very small because you were, we were crossing the river between uh, Croatia and Bosnia. It's called Sava. And River Sava, there's a big bridge that connects Bosanski Broad and Slavonski Broad. And uh, that was uh, blown to pieces. So uh, what happened? But we, we, were, we then crossed, we arrived there and everyone, were, we, we were crossing on a raft. And they would put like 20 people on a raft and you cross and 20 people on a raft and you cross. And that's where I was, got separated from everyone because the, the shelling started. And we just got all dispersed all, all over the place. And I ended up with my sister in one kind of uh, hiding in a, in, a, in a trench and the rest of our family was elsewhere. It must have been, been terrifying, isn't it? It is quite terrifying because, as, you know, you don't... It's, it's very loud, shells falling around it. It's a very loud... And the, the bad thing is that you, you know you don't have any control over it apart all you have with you to protect you is your luck and knowing that you have to be hiding somewhere where shrapnels are not going to get you because it doesn't matter where it falls if it goes into hundreds of thousands of pieces it will get to you so it was it was quite you know it was quite terrifying it was so terrifying to be separated have, yeah how long did you have to stay hidden in the train we didn't we didn't stay long for a few hours we got on the raft crossed the the river and then we went to uh we Were arrived you worried that you might drown crossing the river or was it you know the one thing about emergency situation you never have a moment to think what's going to happen to you because life is lived from not from day to day but from second to second and you don't have time to really worry all you are, you're trying you're on a mission and your mission is cro cross the river and when you get there move away from the river because that's where shelling continues go as far as possible away from the front line and if you're on a mission then you have an internal mechanism that kicks in and you just go i mean if i think about it now i could say oh my god i could have drowned i could have lost my whatever i had my little passport i could have never found my family you know i would have drowned and then when we crossed, we didn't have a way of getting from there to, to Zagreb. So we had to find someone who was going to give us a lift. And then I was like, oh, my God, when I think about it now, I was getting in a car with someone I never met before to go on a 200-kilometer journey. Well, that's irresponsible. But at that time, that was like the best thing that could ever happen to you. Look, someone is going to take you from A to B. And when you get there, there may be planes dropping bombs, but at least there's no regular shelling. So you go like, okay, I'm there. Now I'll go to the next one. So, Were you with your sister? Yes. Which one was she? Was she just, just older than you or your elder sister? Uh, my, my older, uh, just a bit older than me. And what about the other siblings in your mum? They went, they were separated and they, we agreed when we left that if we get separated, we are going to meet in one place. And that's what we, we caught up with them. What was it like when you actually met up there? That must have been extraordinary because you wouldn't have known that you could because there were no mobile well, it's, phones. It, no, it was, it was just... It was amazing because you, if you're together, like half of the problem is over. So did you then feel safe you got to your destination or did you feel 
did the war chase you and catch up with you? The war did chase because you, mm. the war never leaves you. Because first you're always on the you you're hanging on every single word that you hear on the radio, whether there was a shelling, whether there was a whether another town has fallen or etc. And uh, so that's the first thing that is always present. And the second thing is you know that you are actually you feel that you are a burden to the country that has given you refuge. There's no such a thing when there is a war. People say, oh, they got a refuge and they're safe. No, 90% of your brain is left behind and you think what happened to A, B and C. And then you're always thinking, how am I going to go back? deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And then I ended up in, in Slovenia and I wasn't in a refugee camp. I did teach in a refugee camp, but I was, again, staying with, with, with very good friends and were you allowed to be there, or did you have to I was. Hide I, I had to hide to be in, in Slovenia because they were not taking uh, refugees. So what did that mean? You literally could never go out of the house? I didn't go out of the house, but I would go, occasionally I would go to, there was a refugee settlement near the town that I was living in, and my um, hosts would occasionally take me there. And it was it was quite a... It is moving to see your people being kind of in a, in a camp. Mm. And eventually, did you write to the family where you'd been in a parent in England with that? Yes, I did. I wrote to them because I wanted them to know that I was well, and I also asked for some books to be sent to me uh, so I could... I wouldn't lose my English. What sort of books? Was it Shakespeare then? No, actually, I didn't. I, get, I got... Um, Two books I really remember well. One is Come on My Lawn, and mm. the other one is London Fields. I, th- I still have them. Yeah. And uh, a friend of mine, Jane, sent them to me, and she also sent me a ticket to come to Britain. And was it just one ticket, or what about one. your sister? Well, I said that I wouldn't go without my sister coming with me, so okay. we travelled. So we eventually... <laughs> eventually... Uh, she found a kind of a sponsor as well and we came over together. I arrived at Heathrow two weeks before they introduce uh, uh, visas for citizens of Yugoslavia. And 
I didn't, to be honest, I really didn't arrive to stay. I arrived to be safe and to kind of wait to be safe to go back. That's all. And it was, it was Heathrow was what Heathrow always is. It's windy and sort of <laughs> gloomy. <laughs> and, uh, but it, it looked, it looked like, I wouldn't say like a promised land, but it looked like a place that would give you refuge that wouldn't, wouldn't ask you and wouldn't look at you because you're called this or that and put you in this box or that box. And that was very refreshing. Did you feel very welcome? In Britain, mm. yes. I've, I've, <laughs> I think that I was, uh, I, I don't know, I often think of myself like they looked at me a little bit like I was this strange thing that has come out of, you know, war. There were not many wars in 1990s. Mm. It was, it's not like post 9-11 world where there is a war in every corner of the globe. But it, was, it was very sort of, you know, European war. We, you know, where does, how does this happen? Where did you go and stay? I, I stayed with friends. I stayed with Jane Skerritt who is a friend who sent me books initially. And then uh, I stayed with family that sort of uh, almost adopted me, Sir John and Lady Knott, and uh, put former, up with me. The former defence Yes, put up mm. with me for many years and still do. <laughs> but you were living in Chelsea, weren't you? So there must have been... I, lived, I came to live in Chelsea eventually. There must have been such a contrast between your old life in Bosnia and fleeing across the river and all the danger you've been through. And then suddenly... You're in Chelsea. You were on the King's Road. I know. Quite a luxury. Is, did you sense that? that of course contrast? I did. You mm. sense, you know, there are people, you know, good-looking, well-dressed, well-groomed, well-off people mm. going on about their lives. You do feel guilty. You know, you do feel, you, you, you actually constantly live your, 95% of you lives in another place and 5% of you is here and now where, so you can, you know, look around you and operate in the new environment. But do, my... Do you also feel a sense of frustration with people there who sort of, you know, listening to Tracy Chapman, going to Waitrose and having no sense of this war that's going on? I did, so actually. I did, but I learned one huge, big lesson. And my initial anger and frustration that people did not understand what was going on that they didn't do anything about it. Quickly, I remember thinking like someone saying to me how many homeless people there were in London. And I, I just couldn't understand, how can you be homeless? You have a country, you have a passport, you have an ability to go to university, to go to school, to get a job. No one is separating you, no one's killing you, no one's raping you, what is your problem? Mm. But that was a really quite, I, I realized you know, as the time passed, I was like, that was a m m probably quite self-centered worldview. You can't view everything to, through your own experience. And doesn't matter, every, every one of us has their own little battle to fight. You can come from the most prosperous country in the world and have the most horrendous experience that makes you leave your home and become homeless. And I, and I kind of learned through that experience to appreciate other people's uh, challenges. I, did I, feel, I felt more angry with John Major and Douglas Hurd and Malcolm Rifkin 
What made me really angry is hearing Douglas Hurd saying that they imposed uh, embargo on Bosnia, so you couldn't defend yourselves in order to not create, not to create a, what do you call it, a level killing field. So you just, by imposing embargo, indirectly empower those people who are waging a war against defenseless population and they can't do anything about it. And did you feel really frustrated that you were in London but you couldn't do anything about it? Is that when your sort of political life started? Yes. I, I, to be honest, I never liked politics. I never wanted to have anything to do with it when I was living in former Yugoslavia. I had, you know, I, it's not, it just not, wasn't something, else, but I felt frustrated. I felt there was nothing I could do about it. I felt this deep anger. And the only way to challenge that or channel that anger was to try and do something about it. Try and go and explain what is it is that is going on uh, in the Balkans. So you don't get sort of these armchair generals. You need half a million soldiers if you're going to pacify that part of the world. That's rubbish. That was like that was a sort of lazy interpretation of the Second World War. Of course, you can't compare those two, but to not be able to see that there was defenseless population, that Sarajevo is under siege, that there are safe areas, that children are being killed, that women are being raped, that people are being separated, that there are concentration camps, and, and say that you can't, I don't expect you to do anything for me, but don't deny me the right to defend myself. And that is what I found deeply angry. several jobs to earn money. For example, I think you uh, washed up after dinner parties, but you always wore totally. gloves because you knew you were going to go on to a, a more um, high-powered job. And well, you, I didn't. When you employee of the month and you were a waitress at the Haagen-Dazs ice yes, cream parlour on. So you were always the best at whatever you did. Well, I've learned that my father always used to say, whatever it is that you do, you have to do it to the best of your abilities. Not because you want to be best, but try and give yourself to it. I got fed up with it pretty quickly, you know. Mm. There's just that many scoops that you can have in your lifetime. <laughs> I just got... But you no, did no. them better than anyone else. Well, I was, I was waitress of the year on two occasions. Oh, so not not of the year. year. Yeah. <laughs> And, it was, uh, and you always wore rubber gloves when you were doing the washing up. Well, I was, yeah, because I, I still do, to be honest. And someone said to me, why are you wearing rubber gloves? And I was like so offended. I was like, because one day I'm not going to be doing what I'm doing now and I want my hands to be beautiful. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't know where that came from, but I think it came from that pride. And why, I, why do you, who gives you right to see me as a rubber gloves wearing person? And it, which again has influenced me because I think no matter where you are, I always take a particular, uh, not even effort, when I see someone, someone who, is, who drives a car or is a taxi driver or is a waiter or is a, you know, it's not that you are smarter than they, than they are. Maybe you, were, you had a better opportunity. Maybe you should be there for them. Maybe they actually are much better human beings and smarter than you are. It's just that life wasn't kind to them and you have to try and understand it. And uh, I find it quite um, 
you know, empowering. I, I sometimes go to East London School where a friend of mine is a teacher and I really enjoy not teaching but enjoy sort of spending a couple of hours with them every few months telling them about, you know, how your security council works or what you do if you're a civil servant or how it operates. Not that I was a civil servant, but I used to work with civil servants or, you know, what it means to be British because they all come from different backgrounds in different countries. So, uh, Do you think that having survived that great danger at quite a young age, you were more determined to succeed as well and to achieve something and make something of your life? Well, potentially, but I think I came... It was inconceivable to me to have an opportunity to be educated and not to take that opportunity, to have an opportunity to work and not to take that opportunity. Yes, I think so. I, 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 I arrived to a country that didn't reject me, actually accepted me for who I was. And I also felt huge sort of... Even today, I feel that every day I have to give something back because Britain doesn't owe anything to me. And what were you, do you feel? Do you feel that you're a refugee or a visitor? Or when I came. Immigrant? Yes, what, was your, what did you feel your status was? Or My status was I was, uh, was a survivor. I was on exceptional leave to remain. Right. Okay. <laughs> it, was a, it was a status that was created for a particular group of people from that part of the world mm. for that war uh, in order to uh, try to regulate their status in the country. And you went to the LSE, didn't you? Didn't yes, because someone, I won't name the name, said to me that I sounded like a communist apparatchik when I was <laughs> trying to explain what was going on in the former Yugoslavia. And he said to me, what you really need, you need to have a decent education. I was like, what do you mean I need a decent I have just graduated from Sarajevo University. How can that not be? <laughs> and um, and uh, I had that like one day and the next day I was like, well, okay, fine, I'm going to get a decent education. I'll tell you how it is. And I went to LSE and I came back very excited when I got my place. I'm like, I'm going to LSE. And he looks at me, he's like, once a lefty, always a lefty. <laughs> <laughs> Why was Tories there if you were a lefty? But I, he, I was labelled a lefty. I don't think I'm a lefty. I'm kind of socially liberal, fiscally conservative. And... I, I think sometimes what sort of uh, put me or puts me off that kind of lefty idealism, if you want, or left idealism, which is nice, is the idea that you actually have no idea what it is like when you live in a country, but that, that your ideal is uh, it's really not achievable. Let's put that that kind of society. So many people have tried to create it. It's really difficult to create. And some people go in an extreme left kind of uh, sort of ecosystem, which I have lived in, and I know it doesn't work, and I know it's open to corruption, and I know, and I kind of never, I didn't want to have a pale copy of what I've just left behind. And also, in my mind, the big villain in 1991, two, three, four, five, was a Conservative Party, because the Conservative government was dead against helping a country that I was ethnically cleansed from, if you want. Mm. And I wanted to be part of it. I wanted to help it change from inside. So I was kind of like a provocateur. <laughs> I, was, uh, I wanted to be, I wanted actually to show them a different kind of a person that comes from Bosnia. 
Right. It's not a woman that is, you know, living with her meager possession that, and, uh, you know, in, in a column of refugees from Srebrenica or Zepa or any other town, but it was someone who was actually can stand shoulder to shoulder with any one of you and, you know, explain where she comes from, what it is like, and maybe even add something to what you're doing. And I must say, I've had nothing but a positive experience of being a member and, uh, of the Conservative Party. talks about global Britain. Do you think we are global Britain still, or do you think we're becoming too narrow? Well, we have, we have to define what global Britain means. Does that mean, mm. does that mean we see the globe, <laughs> we see the world, or we are part of it? And I think that global Britain, the concept, is really good. I, I love that it kind of it should, should really should encapsulate the way Britain sees itself as a country in the 21st century, whether that concept can and will and how it's going to adjust itself to post-COVID world, I don't know. How it's going to operate in the post-Brexit uh, world, I don't know. I want it to succeed as a country that is uh, having good neighbourly relations with the EU, European Union, and uh, that has got uh, excellent relationship with Commonwealth and you know, North American countries and uh, rest of the world, whether we can in this geopolitical environment, do it on our own, I don't know, time will tell. When uh, William Hague was Foreign Secretary, you flew all over the world with him, didn't you? And you always tried to make him go to the local bars, get out of the <laughs> conference centre, see no. some of the real world. No, Did no, you... actually, he's the one. He would always... He's, he's a he's very... A He's a, he's a very bad influence. Oh, he's, 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 I, ad, I admire William Hague hugely because I think he's a very, he's an extremely smart and clever man and he's, he's, you know, he's, he's textbook of a politician that I hugely admire. So he was dragging you on bar crawls, not totally. the other way around. Well, uh, he, was, no, he was very clever because he, we, we, you know, when you travel on, on these you know, trips, you don't go there for seven days, you go to China in and out in three days and you have to be awake and he, he, was, he was always trying to adjust to the, to the time zone that we were in and we always come in, leave everything, go for a walk go see the town but you know I'm not saying like five hours in a bar you go and walk in have a drink see what people you know how they are and go back to your box and you work but yes that was a, that was a way of uh, of surviving the the schedule and how did you both meet Angelina Jolie because it's quite a juxtaposition William Hague and Angelina Jolie really I actually good. you see that goes back to your initial question so how juxtaposition between Bosnia and Hollywood I think if you care about an issue, that overrides everything. And even the House of Lords, because that must be quite extraordinary to be going into something that's quite so British and in some ways well sort of, fu sort of fusty and old-fashioned. <laughs> I love it. Well, it is, you know, I walked in there, it's like, at first I thought like, when I, <laughs> I thought like, there's got to be some mistake. <laughs> I mean, it cannot be me, it's got some, it's like, and if, until the very minute I was, uh, uh, I was actually in the chamber. I thought a letter will arrive. I was like, sorry, it was someone else. <sighs> uh, it is. Um, it's an extraordinary place, and you know, whatever people say from outside. And I know House of Lords gets a bad rap, uh, but uh, I would say um, it is a. Uh, 
place of enormous knowledge that has been sort of acquired over years where people selflessly give and try to give back to the country. Majority of people do uh, in scrutinizing bills, in contributing to debate, in sharing their knowledge, in sharing their experience. And I feel privileged to be to have an opportunity to be sitting there. And sometimes I genuinely spend time just listening to debates in order to learn and to hear what those with more experience than I will ever have. And you, Angelina Jolie and William Hague, both sat in the gallery to watch your acceptance into the laws, didn't they? What did um, she particularly think of it? It must have been so strange compared to an Oscar ceremony. Crazy. She was lovely. She was... Um, she was uh, she was tried to, you know, she was, she was very good. She was kind of, I only, years later, I realized that she went out of the way to give me all my space for it to be my day, not to overshadow it in any way. And she was absolutely lovely. And so it was William and uh, everyone else who came to see me. And I was very grateful because I, I, I really think these are people who I think very highly of. Mm-hmm. And I felt honored uh, that William would come and see me be introduced. Did you ever think, what would I have done if I hadn't taken that plane ticket and I hadn't come to Britain? Oh, yes, I do. And you know what? When I think about it, I'm... I love this country, and I think this country has loved me in return. And everything I have seen and everything I have done, I would give up in a second just not to have ever had experience of leaving and not to have ever had experience of having country of my birth go through what it has gone through and what it still is going through. Would my life have been different? I think so. I don't think I would, I would probably read about British politics out of interest because I would be analysing something and needing to see what impact this or that event had on this or that writer. But I don't think I would, I would, I would never, ever be anywhere near politics. I would probably be living in a, in a small town in Bosnia and you know, having a normal Bosnian life. Overcoming adversity at such an early age gives you any sort of advantage, or is it always, in the end, something you wish that you'd never had to go through? Well, what gives you advantage is ability, is is the the resilience that you get sort of imparted with. And what gives you resilience is what I had in spades, and that is love from my parents when I was growing up. So I was well-equipped to be bashed around. And uh, what gives you resilience is the strong family structure that I came from. What gives you resilience is belief that there is nothing you can't do if you really try hard. And uh, I think that 
living through kind of living through different systems, living through a war, feeling, you know, like before I came to this country, feeling that that you are being discriminated against because of your religion and because of your ethnicity, that equips you with a particular shield that you build around you. So when, you know, when the bullet comes, it bounces off you. And also, you know, always knowing that you are on a, on a mission in a way, like if you're crossing the river, you're on a mission to cross the river. If you're in, at university, you're on a mission to finish that university because you've been given this enormous opportunity. And I've, I've tried to apply that through COVID sort of experience. I've tried to like, okay, what is my mission? My mission is to work, to exercise, to eat, to sleep, to, <laughs> to be in touch with my family, to be in touch with my friends and to do my absolute best not to be in the way. And every time I would feel like, it's another week and another week and this is not going to, the numbers are going up, what am I going to do, etc. It's like, okay, what do I know? How do I use this time? Do I read? Okay, I'm going to read, I'm going to go and do webinars. I'm going to, you know, try and use whatever adversity it is, try to turn it into something that is positive. Because there's no other way. Otherwise, you are kind of stuck and you start self-indulging in your own situation and that is not the way out and it's not the way forward. Aminka Helich, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you for coming to see me. (laughs) Thank you. Past Imperfect was presented by me, Rachel Sylvester. And me, Alice Thompson. It was produced by Lucy Ditchmont. The executive producer was Matt Hall. It was a Wireless Studios production. You can hear Past Imperfect on Times Radio and download the podcast from Apple Podcasts, ACAS, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.